Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. If you'd rather use an electronic device, turn that on to Luke chapter 22, which is probably 80% of you. If you have the authentic Bible, turn the pages to Luke chapter 22. I've been preaching through the book of Luke. We're nearing the end. Uh, after today, just two, two chapters left in this amazing book. Um, it's been a, been a joy for me to journey through this. Um, we're at the end of chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 63 to 71. Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 71. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace poured out to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, you, um, uh, you are our hope, our life in Christ. That, uh, that's all we have, Lord. Uh, Jesus is our rock, our foundation, the only firm standing stone for our feet. All other ground is sinking sand, we believe. Jesus uh, is our life. Jesus is our hope. Uh, we look to you, Father, now in the name of Jesus and ask, Father, that uh, uh, you would bless us in Christ now as we read your word. We believe you've breathed this out for our good and pray, Father, that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and enable us, Lord, to see great things in your word now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Jesus, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves. From his own lips. Amen. C.S. Lewis used to say that when you, consider the, when you consider the astounding claims Jesus makes in the Bible, when you consider um, who Jesus claims to be and what Jesus claims to be able to do, when, when you consider, for instance, that Jesus claims He has existed forever and is able to forgive sins and is coming back again someday to, to judge the world and things like that, C.S. Lewis said there are really only three options as to who Jesus could be. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or He's Lord. Lewis knew a lot of people in his day who respected Jesus as a moral teacher, but they didn't believe that Jesus was God. But Lewis said it's really not possible for Jesus to be a moral teacher. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, 
or else he'd be the devil of hell, a complete liar. You must make your choice. Either, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. End quote. Now, you know, Lewis's argument there, it's not a perfect argument for the deity of Christ. Uh, his reasoning there ultimately rests on whether or not the Bible is actually true. Someone could simply say, well, the Bible is fabricated. Jesus, the person, he, he never even existed, or he, he, he never made the claims that are in the Bible. They were just inventions of later disciples trying to make Jesus look like God. As, as Bart Ehrman said, there is another option, legend. It's all just legend. But if the Bible is true, and we believe here in this church that it is, then when you consider the claims Jesus makes in the Bible, you really only have three main options as to who Jesus could be. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. And here in this passage, man, Jesus makes some astounding claims. We see here in this passage three very important titles. Now, we've, we've seen these titles before in Luke, but this is the first time that we've seen all three titles in the same passage together. And here in this passage, Jesus claims all three titles for himself. Up to this point in the book of Luke, other people have primarily attributed these titles to Jesus. But now in one brief passage, just before he's crucified, Jesus claims all three titles for himself. This passage here is all about Christology. Who is Jesus? The identity of Jesus. And man, this passage here would have been incredibly important for a man named Theophilus. Luke originally wrote this book here to a man named Theophilus. We learned that in the very first couple of verses here in the book of Luke. Theophilus was a man who had learned some things about Jesus, and, and Luke wanted Theophilus to have certainty about Jesus. And one of the things Luke wanted Theophilus to be certain about was who Jesus is. And up to this point, it's primarily been other people who have been saying things about the person of Jesus. But now, Jesus tells us about himself. And who does Jesus claim to be here? Well, the first title Jesus claims here is the Christ. In the previous passage, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders, and they took Jesus back into the city of Jerusalem. They took Jesus into the high priest's home. Caiaphas was high priest at this time. This was probably Caiaphas's home. The house also might have been inhabited by Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas, who was the high priest before Caiaphas. So Jesus is in this home here. And Jesus, at the start of this passage here, He's, he's probably already gone through some sort of pre-trial hearing. Now, according to Jewish law, 
They could not have a formal hearing until it was day, but I guarantee Jesus has already been informally interrogated here. Middle of the night police interrogation of sorts. But but listen, these religious leaders that, that would have been interrogating Jesus here in the middle of the night, they've already rendered a verdict long before Jesus was ever even arrested. You know, Jesus will have a formal trial of sorts in the morning to give the appearance of legitimacy, but this thing's already a done deal. There's, there's no innocent until proven guilty here with Jesus. No, Jesus in their minds, he's been guilty for a long time, and they're just now waiting to make it official, give it some sort of rubber stamp. And the guards who are now watching Jesus till this morning trial, under the cover of night with some time to burn here they begin to have a little fun with Jesus if you look at verse 63 again now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him they also blindfolded him and kept asking him prophesy who is it that struck you man it is it is uh It's just amazing how cruel the human race can be at times. It's amazing, shocking when you really stop and think about the outright cruelty of the human race. The the vicious words that we can speak to one another, the, the vicious acts that we can perform against one another, malicious School bullies. I was uh, just listening to the radio yesterday about cyber bullies. Senseless rapes and, and murders. Flying planes into buildings. Massive atrocities from one ethnic group against another. When I was in the uh, seventh grade, I can remember it vividly in my mind, walking down the hallway of my school. I was walking behind another boy who was well known in my school as one of the school bullies. And as we were walking down the hall, he was in front of me. Uh, he sees this other boy walking the other direction, is going to pass us. It was a young boy that a lot of other children in the school made fun of. And as this little boy passes for no reason at all, the school bully just reaches back and as hard as he can punches him right in the stomach. His books flew everywhere. The boy fell to the ground. And he had a seizure right in front of me. Man. It was a uh, wake-up call for a 7th grade uh, boy. Just concerning the outright cruelty of the human race. Just amazing the things that we can do. And man, things just get worse when human beings are in some sort of a mob. It's a known fact that a mob of human beings will often go to deeper levels of cruelty than the individuals in the mob normally would on their own. Each person in the mob has this decreased sense of personal responsibility and the mob goes crazy and you see it on the five o'clock news, the the looting and the burning and the, the beating of people. And Jesus, I think here he experiences probably a sort of 
mob violence. The, the guards here, probably not Roman guards. Jesus will be brought to the Romans later. These are probably Jewish guards of some sort, temple guards maybe, and under the cover of night with some time to burn and, and, and probably aware now that Jesus has already essentially been convicted of some sort of crime. They now begin to mock Jesus, Luke says, insult Jesus. Jesus, ridicule, laugh at Jesus. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 say the guards also spit on Jesus. Incredibly demeaning. I remember, uh, remember watching a, a football game where Bill Romanowski of the Denver Broncos spit right in the face of J.J. Sp- J. J. Stokes of the 49ers. One of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in sports, and these guards are spitting on Jesus repeatedly, probably, and beating him, Luke says. And the Greek word Luke uses there could also be translated as skinning him, flaying him, whipping him. Essentially, very, a very vicious and very humiliating form of police brutality. And they also play this twisted game with Jesus, blindfolding him and, and, and slugging him when he's blindfolded. Can you just imagine that? Being blindfolded, maybe a sack over your face and, and, and people just punching you all of a sudden and, and these men then yelling at a prophesy, Jesus, who struck you? You ever play, you ever play blind man's bluff as a kid? It was originally called blind man's buff. The word buff meaning a small push. And in the original game, you had a kid who was blindfolded, and he would, he would grope around trying to tag the other kids who would occasionally run up behind him and, and kind of push him on the back or push him in the shoulder and then run away laughing. And this is really a, a pretty twisted form of blind man's buff, just bare-knuckling Jesus in the face while he's blindfolded and saying, prophesy, Jesus, who struck you? And they're mocking Jesus here because a lot of people at this time in Israel, they really did think Jesus was a prophet. They've been saying it about Jesus all the way through the book of Luke that he's a prophet. And these guards now are mocking Jesus for it. If you really are a prophet, Jesus, you know who just slugged you. Man, it's incredibly ironic what's taking place right there. This entire passage here is really laced with irony. These guards here think there's no way that Jesus is actually a prophet. And yet what they're actually doing now to Jesus is proving that he really is a true prophet. Because Jesus prophesied that this would happen. Luke 18, Jesus said, uh, Luke 9, Jesus said he'd be rejected by the Jewish leaders. Luke 18, he said he'd be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. There it is. They're, they're mocking Jesus as a false prophet, and yet their actions are actually proving that Jesus is a true prophet. And Luke then says in verse 65 that these guards said many other things against Jesus, blaspheming him. And and Luke's word choice right there is highly significant. 
The Greek word there that Luke used, the Greek word for blasphemy, refers to a slander against God. So when Luke says there that these men blaspheme Jesus, Luke is trying to tell you something about Jesus. He's trying to tell you that Jesus is God. Mocking Jesus here is mocking God himself. A blasphemy. And this torture here, you know, probably continued all night long. And at the end of the night, just picture it, Jesus is probably physically exhausted as the God-man, exhausted physically, dripping with blood and spit. Man, you you think about this beating here, this intense suffering Jesus endured. You know, uh, well, you know one thing this this suffering here means. It means that Jesus can understand your suffering. Jesus knows fully what it feels like to suffer as a human being. Jesus knows fully even what it feels like to be brutally mistreated by other human beings. Jesus experienced firsthand the cruelty of this human race. And because of that, Jesus, he, he, he can now understand your suffering no matter what it is. And in, in your suffering, you, you, can, you can now go to Jesus in faith. And you will find Jesus to be a very loving and empathetic refuge in your time of distress. But listen, Jesus didn't ultimately suffer here just to understand, but to save. This this beating here, you know, it wasn't just the fulfillment of some of Jesus' prophecies in the book of Luke. No, this, this was also the fulfillment of lots of other prophecies scattered throughout the entire Bible. Prophecies that were written long before Jesus was ever born. Throughout the Old Testament books in the Bible, God promised multiple times that he would one day send a Savior to this earth. A Savior who would suffer. Isaiah 50, he would give his back to those who would strike. He would give his cheeks to those who would pull out his beard. He would not hide from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, he'd be despised and rejected by men. And why all this suffering? Well, he would suffer in order to save. Isaiah 53, he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He would carry the sins of many. Upon himself, a suffering Savior. And that's Jesus. We are sinners who deserve to be punished eternally for our sins. But Jesus stepped in to take that punishment in order that everyone who would believe in him, trust in him, might be forgiven and delivered from that punishment. Listen, if you truly trust in Jesus today... You are clinging to him in faith. You are seeking to follow him in your life. Then you can now look back at this beating that Jesus was taking right here. And you can say, that was for me. Every punch. Every whip. Every drop of spit. 
that should have been mine. That is the punishment I deserve, but Jesus took it for me. That's how Paul talks about himself, Galatians 2.20. Jesus loved me. He gave himself for me. That's my punishment. That's my suffering. That's my beating. That's my weeping, whipping. That's my spit. And Jesus took it from me. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus had undertaken here to purchase our redemption by his own humiliation. And he did not flinch here from paying the utmost penny of that price. Man, Jesus suffered this abuse here not just to understand, but to save And after this long, long night of abuse here, Jesus then, he goes to this this pseudo-trial of sorts. If you look at verse 66 again. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And this is now the morning of what we call Good Friday. It's the the day Jesus will be killed. And man, this trial here, it's not much of a trial. The the assembly of leaders here was, was probably the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism at this time. The 71 most prominent Jewish Leaders with the high priest leading the council. The Sanhedrin uh, at this time had a ton of authority in Israel. Uh, The ultimate authority over all religious matters and also over most legal matters. As long as the council didn't encroach on the authority of the Romans who were in control of Israel at this time. But if the council didn't encroach on the authority of the Romans, the Sanhedrin had supreme authority in Israel. Israel. The Sanhedrin presided over the majority of the criminal cases, and the only thing the Sanhedrin really couldn't do under Roman authority was carry out a capital punishment by itself. All death sentences had to be confirmed, and most of them carried out by the Romans, which is why Jesus will soon go before Pilate. So, So Jesus is dragged, bloody, covered with spit before the Sanhedrin here. And the trial here is a sham. You ever ever heard of a kangaroo court before? A a, a court uh, that blatantly disregards law and justice? Well, most commentators say that the Sanhedrin probably violated a number of laws with this trial here. And just to name a few of the laws that were probably violated here, Jesus was tried without a defense. Jesus was also tried during a major festival. The verdict came in one day instead of the required two days for a capital trial. And the first person to pronounce the verdict here was the high priest when Pronouncements were required to start with the least members of the Sanhedrin and work their way up with the high priest being the last one to pronounce a verdict. It's a kangaroo court. And the one thing these guys really want to hear Jesus say here is that he's the Christ. 
if you are the Christ, Jesus tell us. Why? Why, why, why are they asking that? Why, why do they want to hear him say that? Because they know. Because they know that that specific title right there, the Christ, is the title that will most likely get Jesus executed by the Romans. And here's why. All through the Old Testament books, God promised that he would one day send this Christ to Israel. The word Christ simply means Messiah. So all through the Old Testament, God had been promising that he would send this Messiah to Israel. And by the time Jesus was born, that title, Christ or Messiah, had become a very politically charged title with kingly overtones. The Jewish people over time, they had grown to believe that the Messiah would come to Israel as a mighty king with this great display of power and conquer the Romans. But it was a a faulty concept of the Messiah because the Old Testament indicated that the Messiah would come not just once, but twice. And he'd come the second time in great power and conquer, but he would come the first time in great weakness and suffer, a dying Messiah. But the Jewish people expected him to come just once, that this powerful king to conquer the Romans. And here's the thing. The Romans knew the Jews were expecting it. The Romans knew that the Jews were looking for this Christ, this supposed Messiah who was going to conquer them. And man, this Sanhedrin council here knows, they know that if they can simply get Jesus to say that he's the Christ, he's a dead man. The Romans will probably kill him. That's the charge that these men here will ultimately bring to Pilate. In the very next passage, Luke 23, 3, Pilate, this man said he's the Christ. A king. What do you say, Pilate? All these men want to hear Jesus say is that he's the Christ, and Jesus does say it. In a roundabout sort of way. (laughs) Look at verse 67. Tell us, Jesus, if you're the Christ. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. And I think Jesus is simply saying there that it's useless to answer them. They've made up their minds. If I tell you that I'm the Christ, you're not going to believe I'm the Christ. You're just looking for a reason to kill me. And if I ask you a question here in some sort of rebuttal, well, you're not going to answer my question, which is exactly what these men have already done on multiple occasions in the book of Luke. Jesus asked them a question about John's baptism in Luke 20, and they wouldn't answer him. He asked them another question later in Luke 20 about David's son and David's Lord, and they wouldn't answer him again. Jesus knows it's useless to answer here. But here's the thing. According to the book of Mark, Jesus does answer. Mark 14, 61. The high priest asked Jesus again if he was the Christ, and Jesus said, I am. I am the Christ, the Messiah of God. Man, these men here were probably thrilled 
to hear Jesus say it. Not because they believed it, but because they now think they have all they need to get Jesus lynched by the Romans. But it's all according to Jesus' plan here. Because Jesus came to die. And by answering their question right there, Jesus just sealed his death according to his plan. (laughs) But you know, Jesus, it's amazing. Once he seals his death by saying that he's the Messiah, he just goes right ahead and drives a couple nails into his coffin. (laughs) It's right after he says it. Jesus quickly claims a couple more titles. He just claimed to be the Christ. And now Jesus quickly claims a second title here, the Son of Man. Look at verse 69. Jesus said, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. (laughs) Oh, man. You, You talk about driving nails into your coffin. He's doing it right here, and he's doing it on purpose. Jesus has actually called himself the Son of Man all the way through the book of Luke, and I haven't talked about it much because I was waiting for this. Man, he says it all the time. That was his favorite title for himself in the Gospels. Jesus, rather than just using the the first-person pronoun I, he just called himself the Son of Man. That was his favorite title for himself in the Gospels. He used that title, Son of Man, 82 different times. And it's a fantastic title for Jesus It's a a title, for starters, that that captures his humanity. It it, it says that Jesus was a human being, a son of human flesh, son of man. And you know, that's probably all that most people thought Jesus was saying when when he used the title son of man. Well, Jesus is just being humble here, and he's just saying, I'm I'm a man, just a, just a, a lowly human being, but listen, that, that title there, Son of Man, it, it also pointed some, to something much, much more than just his humanity. Je- Jesus took that title there from the book of Daniel, a, a vision that Daniel had. Here it is. You got it? <laughs> Thank you. Here it is. Here's the, here's the vision. Here's the, here's the statement in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7.13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him and to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Thank you. (laughs) So man, you you think about this, this, this son of man figure here, that this being who is obviously somehow associated with with humanity, a son of human flesh, now in this this passage uh, that Daniel talks about there, now he's coming on the clouds of of heaven to the Ancient of Days. He's, He's coming to God himself, and this son of man is then given dominion and glory and a kingdom, things that ultimately belong to God. 
all the nations of the earth, then serve this Son of Man. That Hebrew word could also be translated as worship. They worship this Son of Man, and His kingdom is forever. You just think about that. This is some divine ruler or judge. He's distinct in some ways from the ancient of days, and yet also somehow equal to the ancient of days, possessing the very dominion and glory of God himself, the Son of Man. It's a term of humanity that was also somehow connected by Daniel to deity. And Jesus just claimed the title for himself. From now on, you will see the Son of Man. You will see me seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Jesus was referring to his resurrection and his ascension into heaven there. Yes, men, you you will kill me, as the Bible has prophesied, a dying Messiah. But I will rise again as the Bible has prophesied. And I will then ascend into heaven as the Bible prophesied. Psalm 110, God will say to me, God will say to the Messiah, the Lord will say to me, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And men, in that place, men, In that place, men, when I, the Messiah, am seated at the right hand of God, I will then have all the glory and dominion of God. I will have the kingdom of God. And my kingdom will never end. (laughs) Man, when when you connect that Son of Man statement to that Daniel 7 passage, man, those are some absolutely mind blowing statements from Jesus. Standing here in front of this Sanhedrin, connecting himself to this Daniel 7 Son of Man figure. And you know what Jesus was essentially saying there to these men by claiming that Daniel 7 passage for himself? I'm God. I'm God. The eternal Son of God. The God-man. God in human flesh. Distinct from the Father in some ways, and yet equal to the Father. You know another thing Jesus was saying here? When he says to these men that he's the Son of Man who will soon be seated at the right hand of God, you know another thing Jesus is saying to these men before him right here? I will judge you someday. I will judge you. Man, again, very ironic. The one who is being judged here is actually the judge. The judge of the entire universe who from now on will be sitting in judgment over, the, over them. Man, you think about these men, the Sanhedrin here. I mean, man, these guys are a little bit like third graders in, in an art class. Judging Michelangelo. You're not a true painter. Your paintings stink. And we know. Because we can almost color between the lines now. 
Little kids, judging Michelangelo. Only this is infinitely worse because these men, they, 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 they don't have Michelangelo on trial. No, these men here have put God on trial. So Jesus, man, he has now claimed here the title of the Christ. He's claimed the title of the Son of Man, and he just keeps going. The last title Jesus claims here is the Son of God. Look at verse 70 again. So they all said to Jesus then, now that he hears this statement about him sitting at the right hand of God, they all said to Jesus, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. (laughs) Listen, when Jesus just said to to these men here that he was the son of man, this Daniel 7 figure who would soon be seated at the right hand of God, these guys knew instantly that Jesus just claimed somehow to be divine, equal to the one true God somehow. And they now want Jesus to clarify just to make sure they heard him correctly. Are you saying, Jesus, that you as the Son of Man are also somehow Son of God? Daniel 7, somehow equal to God in there? And Jesus says, you say that I am. You know, it sounds a little strange to you and me to hear somebody answer a question like that. Oh, my kids never do that. What are you talking about? You say that I am. You say that I am. It sounds strange to us. Wasn't back then. Uh, back then, that, that phrase, uh, you say that I am, was a manner of speech. It was a particular way of agreeing or, or giving assent or saying yes. You were definitely saying yes to the question, but people would say yes like that, using that particular phrase for a number of different reasons. We don't know exactly why Jesus said yes like that right there, but it may have been this. People often said yes like that when they wanted to put the statement back into the mouth of the questioner. And if that's why Jesus answered like that here, then Jesus was essentially saying this, Men, you just said that I'm the Son of God. And you were right when you said that. You are right. You know, we do the same type of thing. Somebody walks up to you and says, man, are you the coolest guy in the room or what? And you say, you said it, man. And you could say that again. Because you nailed it. I am the coolest guy in the room. And Jesus may have been saying something like there. He may have wanted here just to put the word Son of God back on the lips of his accusers here. You just said that I'm the Son of God and you don't yet understand everything that you just said there. You don't understand yet that I'm actually the eternal Son of God. Uh, you don't understand yet that, that, that I'm not just equal to God in some ways, but, but I am God in human flesh, God the Son. You definitely don't understand everything yet, but you said it, accusers. And you were dead right in saying it. I am the Son of God. 
And when Jesus says yes to that statement here, these men here, man, they definitely don't every un- understand everything that implies. But they know at the very least he just declared that he is somehow in some way equal to the one true God. And they've now heard everything they need to hear. If you look at verse 71 again, they say to Jesus, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Matthew 26 and, Matthew and Mark 14 say that it was the high priest who said it. And Matthew and Mark also say that the high priest then said to Jesus, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy what you just said. Blasphemy. And the high priest then pronounced that Jesus deserved to die for what he had just said. They knew he was claiming somehow to be equal to the one true God. You ever hear someone say that Jesus never claimed to be God? In the Bible? He he never claimed to be equal to God in the Bible. You ever heard somebody say that? It's just not true. (laughs) Jesus has claimed it many different times and he claimed it in many different ways and he just did it right there. And these guys know that he just claimed that he was somehow equal to God and they respond with blasphemy. What you just said. Man. Another bit of irony there. Men in this passage accuse Jesus of blasphemy against God, and yet Luke said earlier that they were actually the ones who were guilty of blasphemy against God when they mocked him because he is God, the eternal Son of God. So, man, Jesus in this passage, a little passage, he makes these three. Three astounding claims there about his own person. Just, just before he's killed, while, he, while he's being mocked and beaten and now standing in front of this kangaroo court, Jesus claims three huge titles for himself. I'm the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And this passage here, this, this thing would have been so important to Theophilus, who first received this letter. I mean, up to this point in the book, other people have primarily attributed those three titles to Jesus. But now Jesus clearly claims them for himself. And, and, and when it comes to the Christology, that, that Luke has been progressively laying out here in this book for Theophilus, when it comes to the identity of Jesus, that Luke has been progressively fleshing out here in this book for Theophilus, that little passage right there is really the high point. That's the pinnacle. Who is Jesus? Well, Theophilus. Here's what Jesus said about himself. I'm the Christ. Son of man. Son of God. And you know, with a last little bit of irony here, I think there's something here in this passage that that Luke now wants to leave with all of us. I think there's something here in this passage that Luke wanted to leave with Theophilus when he read this passage. I think there's something in this passage Luke wants to leave with every last bit of us. Something here in 
this passage that Luke wants to be ringing in all of our ears when we walk out of this room this morning. What is it? Well, it's ironic, but I think it's probably that very last statement from Jesus' accusers, verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. I think Luke wants that question there ringing in your ears this morning. You know, Luke really has nowhere else to go here in his book with the Christology, with with the identity of Jesus. That's the high point. That is the pinnacle. Jesus has now spoken himself. And Luke is now asking all of us, what further testimony do you need? You've heard it yourself now from the lips of Jesus. And you know know what's crazy? Is, Is there is a sense in which you now sit in one of the seats of the Sanhedrin. And you have Jesus standing in front of you now. Bloody and covered with spit. And you have now heard his testimony about himself. What's your verdict? What's your verdict? Legend? Is it all just legend, the entire thing, and he never did really make those claims? Lunatic? Is Jesus just plain crazy? Is some sort of whack job? Liar? Was he just telling lies, outright lies right there? Or is he Lord? Is he really the Christ? Son of man, the Son son of God. He's given you his testimony. What's your verdict? What do you say? Legend, lunatic, liar, Lord. Man, deliberate carefully. And if you do choose that last option, and, and you do, you do, you do decide that Jesus truly is Lord. Let me encourage you to submit to Him accordingly. You bow to Jesus in your life as the Christ. The suffering Messiah came to die for all who would trust in Him. You would bow to Him as the Son of Man. The one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father and who will soon come to judge the entire world. And that you would bow to Him as the Son of God. You would bow to Him as God. You would worship Jesus as God. You would enjoy Jesus as God. God. You'd obey Jesus as God. You would follow Jesus as God. You would rest in Jesus as God. You would trust in Jesus all of your life as God in human flesh. For the Bible says that all who take refuge in Him will not be put to shame. 
We have heard from His own lips today. What further testimony do you need? Father, we thank You. We do thank You, Father, for Your Word. We thank You, Father, for this testimony from a man named Jesus. Bloodied, covered with spit. This testimony about his own identity, his own person. And Father, I know many in this room, you, you, have, you have convinced us with the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who he said he is. That he is Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Lord, you've opened up our eyes, Lord, and you've convinced us that Jesus is, is Lord, who he says here that he is. Lord, I just pray you do that work in more and more hearts here, Father. Father, you'd help people who may be wrestling with, is this legend? Is he crazy? Is he a liar? To help. And Father, you give the gift of faith. You'd remove the, the, the veil that the God of this world is used to blind the minds of unbelievers. You'd remove the veil and help them to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, give us faith. Give us eyes to see, Father. We thank you for this testimony here, this written word, this testimony about Jesus. And we ask you, Father, for faith to believe it and to follow him all of our days. In the name of Jesus, amen.